0: listener production Hey Rihanna Patrick here and welcome to the briefing When you think of Australian bush rangers Ned Kelly and Captain Thunderbolt might pop straight into your head. But what do you know about Australia's first bushranger, who was a convict of African descent? Well, very soon you're going to hear more about this new book, which is exploring the hidden stories of Australia's other bushrangers. But first, headlines with Eleanor Harrison Dengate. It's Tuesday, the 3rd of January.
1: Four people are dead and three others are in a critical condition after a mid-air helicopter collision on the Gold Coast. At around 2pm yesterday, it's understood one helicopter was taking off and the other was landing at Broadbeach just outside SeaWorld before they collided. One crashed into a sandbank upside down while the other managed to land. Resident Steve Rushilla told the ABC what he saw.
2: One of them from underneath seemed like came up and hit the bottom of the other one on the top. Uh, I don't know if they were both uh, trying to land at the same time or what they were trying to do. And then just heard this loud bang and uh, just pieces of shrapnel flying everywhere. The main part of the helicopter was intact and fell straight to the ground.
0: Yeah, Eleanor, five other passengers, including a child, were taken to hospital with minor injuries and another person escaped uninjured and both helicopters were SeaWorld helicopters and the company
1: has issued a statement saying that they're devastated. And Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has also tweeted about it, saying Australia is shocked by the news of the terrible and tragic incident, and that his thoughts are with all those affected.
0: Yeah, Eleanor, and the Australian Transport and Safety Bureau is investigating, and they're asking witnesses to come forward too.
1: Yeah, so the crash only took just a few seconds, but there does seem to be a bit of footage around, so hopefully that will help in finding out just what happened. Newly
0: released health advice shows the federal government is not following the directions of the chief medical officer when it comes to travellers from China. The Albanese government is imposing mandatory COVID-19 testing on people coming from China, Hong Kong or Macau to
1: come into effect on Thursday. Although advice to the health minister from chief medical officer Paul Kelly says there is not a sufficient rationale for the measure. He says it is inconsistent with Australia's approach to living with the virus and disproportionate to the risk.
0: Yeah. And health minister Mark Butler has announced a restriction saying it was out of an abundance of caution due to the explosion of infections in China and the potential of these new variants emerging and the lack of information about China's outbreak. And there are still questions surrounding how the new measures will be policed and what proof is needed and what happens to anyone who tests positive when they get here. And Eleanor, this is something that we were following at the end of last year. And I mean, what are those COVID numbers?
1: looking like and what is happening elsewhere? I mean, is it just Chinese visitors? Yeah, so this is one of those things where essentially the reason is that we don't have enough information because what happened is China's decided they're going to, as part of rolling back China's COVID zero policy, they've decided to stop requiring cases to be reported and they've changed classifications for COVID deaths. So actually the World Health Organization has also said that this is a bit of an issue. So it's actually led to the US, Japan, India, South Korea, France and Italy also imposing these testing mandates for Chinese visitors. And this also is coinciding with that reopening, I guess, of the relationship between China and Australia, which was just happening at the end of last year. And China's Consul General, uh, on hearing this news, has expressed deep regret.
0: Australia's population looks to be back on track and the fertility rate is back to where it was pre-pandemic thanks to that
1: post-pandemic baby boom. So in 2020, the fertility rate dropped to an all-time low of 1.58 births per woman. It's now back up to 1.66 per woman, although it's unlikely to rise more. And migrants coming into Australia is also
0: rebounding back to 235,000 people a year after losing more than 470,000 as a result of COVID travel
1: restrictions. And it's pretty likely that that's also part of the reason why we're seeing that fertility rate come back up, because new migrants are more likely to have kids younger. Alex Dimonor has beaten 22-time Grand Slam champion Rafael Nadal in three sets at the United Cup.
2: Rafa's a hell of a competitor and what he's been able to do for this sport is truly astounding. So I'm just honoured and, uh,
1: you know, it's a dream come true being able to beat him on court.
0: Yeah, Dimonor there. And
1: Eleanor, it's the fourth time the Aussie has faced Nadal, but the first time he's managed to win. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Uh, Only three other Aussies have actually managed to beat Nadal, Leighton Hewitt, uh, Chris Guccione and Nick Kyrgios. So it's pretty epic that Dimonor's managed to crack that, although it could also signal a bit of a changing of the guard because Nadal is getting older at 36. And so despite Dimonor's win, both Spain and Australia are still out of the United Cup because Great Britain won Group D and the UK will face the US tomorrow and then that acts as a playoff for the semifinals. Yeah, you know, and speaking of other tennis news, Novak Djokovic has played his first official
0: match back on Australian soil after last year's Visa Fiasco, which culminated in his deportation. And he played doubles in the Adelaide International but lost.
1: He's set to play his first singles match tonight. Briefly to other news, people are beginning to stream through St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican to pay their respects to Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. His funeral will be on Thursday.
0: Movie star Jeremy Renner, famous for playing Hawkeye in the Marvel franchise, is in a critical but stable condition
1: after being injured while ploughing snow. Australian house prices have dropped 5.3% over 2022. It's the first time they've fallen since 2018. 100 people have been charged with drug offences at Sydney's Field Day Music Festival. And a baby elephant has been born at Melbourne Zoo. Rihanna, are you excited about this? Uh, oh, it is cute. And even my husband said so, so it's not just me. Very exciting. There's going to be a public vote on the name, so hopefully it won't be called Elephant McElephant Face. We can only hope, and I love a public vote for naming an animal. Um, thanks, Eleanor.
0: Uh, up next, what you know about bush rangers may not be what you thought. Of Australia, the influence that Bush have had on this country's national identity is kind of everywhere, from Bush Rangers Hill to football clubs and even lawn mowers named after them. But a new book, Boundary Crosses: The Hidden History of Australia's Other Bush Rangers introduces you to bush you've never heard of. Dr Meg Foster is a historian and author of Boundary Crosses. Meg, thanks for joining The Briefing. This book was a decade in the making, but how did you discover the stories of Australia's other bushrangers?
2: It was really a process. I originally was really interested in looking at where history intersects with national identity. And I was chatting to a mentor about a potential research project. And he was like, you know, why don't you look at Aboriginal bushrangers Rangers? And I was shocked. <laughs> I'd never known there were Aboriginal bushrangers. I'd taken every Australian history course, every Indigenous history course. And of course, my next question is well, why didn't I know about these people and who else doesn't know too? And so I started with that. And of course, the more I researched, the more I realized there were other, other bushrangers, bushrangers who weren't white men, who've been written out of the national narrative. And I really wanted to understand why they'd been written out and also try to see their lives on their own terms, not just as, you know, an an Aboriginal Ned Kelly or a Chinese Ben Hall, but as individuals who made active choices about their lives and who may have seen their actions in a very different light to how we might think.
0: So who did you choose to focus on in this book, knowing that it might be hard to find information?
2: Yeah, so the book follows four figures, um, so, I mean, it might seem a bit excessive, right, four figures for 10 years, but it's very much detective work. Um, the book starts by looking at Black Douglas, who is renowned as a Terror of the Victorian Goldfields in the 1850s. He's an African-American man. It then goes on to the Chinese bushranger Sam Poo, who's operating in 1860s New South Wales. And then I look at two First Nations bushrangers, Waramai Aboriginal woman, Marianne Bug, who some listeners might be familiar with as the companion of the white bushranger, Captain Thunderbolt. And then the final bushranger is the Aboriginal man, Jimmy Gubner, who, once again, listeners may be familiar with. Um, He was later fictionalised in the 1970s by Thomas Keneally as Jimmy Blacksmith. But I really wanted to see as I say, his life on his own terms and also that of his family as well that's been written out of the historical record really until now. Meg, you mentioned there that it was a bit of detective
0: work. I mean, just how difficult was it to fact-check these stories, let alone find information that
2: you could trust? It was incredibly difficult. And, I mean, on first impressions, it seemed like it was going to be relatively easy, so I should say that you should never judge a book by its cover, first <laughs> impressions. Um there's a very rich colonial archive that looks at the crime part, right? So most of these bush rangers enter the archive, enter the colonial imaginary when they start committing crimes or being mixed up with crime. But there's something incredibly problematic about using that as the only archive because, of course, crime archives are incredibly problematic. They're designed to control, demean and dehumanise people and that that kind of problematic element is even worse when these, this archive is policing people of colour and it's created by, you know, white colonists who are set on creating a white man's country on stolen Indigenous land. So there, there's lots of layers there. So that was the entry point, the Colonial Crime Archive. But then I really wanted to, to expand out and sometimes that meant following a breadcrumb of different information. So looking at the Chinese bushranger Ranger Poo, for instance, One detail in his archive, a jail register said that he was from a place called Amoy in China. One detail really shifted my whole understanding of his story. He wasn't a part of the Gold Rush migration that we're used to thinking of Chinese migrants entering Australia from. He was actually part of a very different story. He came over almost a decade earlier as an indentured labourer and that detail also allowed me to see, okay, what was it like in this place called Amoy in China? What was happening there? What traditions of banditry do they have? How would that have affected how Sam Poo saw himself and his own actions? So, I mean, that's just one example of the kind of process I took, but it was very different for each bush ranger because their archives were quite different.
0: Meg, who was your favourite bush ranger while you were writing about these particular four?
2: I mean I probably shouldn't have a favorite but I do of <laughs> course working closely with the material um I really love Marianne Bug's story I just think it's so incredible it's one of those instances of you know fact is stranger than fiction she's an incredible waramai aboriginal woman her father is uh, originally a convict for the Australian agricultural company her mother is from the waramai people around the kind of Gloucester area of New South Wales she first enters the archive in the 1860s as a companion to Captain Thunderbolt but one of the first actual instances we have of her is her being incredibly active so she and her two children are captured by the police in 1865 she's heavily pregnant and instead of you know being a demure woman who just kind of gets carted away she's actively berating the police she's kind of calling one a coward for capturing her instead of Thunderbolt She at one stage is meant to have leapt off a horse and ripped an officer's shirt to ribbons. And then after that, she feigns contraction. She pretends she's going into labor. So the police have to leave her at a nearby station for her to give birth. And, you know, miraculously, the police leave. And lo and behold, her contractions stop and she's able to run away. So she's someone who is incredibly savvy, incredibly, I mean, strong, resilient, powerful. She's a badass. But she's also someone who's really aware of public perception. So when she's, you know, eventually brought before the court, she doesn't portray herself in the way I've just described to you. She portrays herself as this kind of meek woman who, you know, is just following her husband, Frederick Ward, a.k.a. Captain Thunderbolt. And she says, you know, if he stole things and that's kind of, you know, his business, but I'm just a poor wife, like, you know, receiving goods as any wife would. And, of course, the police officer is like, um, excuse me, you have told me all these details about these crimes. I'm pretty sure you took part in them yourself. You dressed in men's pants. You slaughtered cattle. Like, it's really interesting to see that kind of that contrast between what Marianne is saying in different contexts and also I guess when she's kind of offered a bit too much information as well, it seems like in kind of pushing back against the police and goading them, she's actually accidentally given them ammunition against her, But I think her story is just one of those instances of, yeah, fact to stranger than fiction and just the story of an incredible woman.
0: So how much did Marianne and the other Bushrangers that you cover in this book really understand about the colonial media of the time? I mean, how did they use that to their benefit sometimes?
2: Yeah. So it's very different. So Marianne seems to have been very, very aware of the media. So she's reading newspaper articles. It's pretty clear. She's actually Very unique in that too, right? Because education wasn't a very big thing in 1860s New South Wales. There was actually some concern that the bush ranging crisis of the time in part was caused by a lack of education among lower class white people. But Mary Ann's father sent her to Sydney to be educated. So she's definitely using that education to her advantage, reading the media reports, even spreading misinformation in some instances as well. Someone like Jimmy Governor, the other Aboriginal bushranger of the book, is also hyper aware of the media. He seems to have been reading stories actually about Ned Kelly or other bushrangers, it seems, from some of the evidence we have. And he's also leaving letters for the police, right? So, it, like, you know, kind of a la Ned Kelly in the Geraldry letter. He's actually leaving evidence for the police, telling them about his grievances, telling them about why he sees himself as a bushranger, why he became a bushranger. Um, so they're definitely using the media to their own ends. In the case of Sam Poo, there's not the same type of evidence. And, I mean, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but I think that in part is because his story is quite messy. It's not as clear-cut as even saying that he is the person who committed the crimes he's accused and then eventually executed for. And the case of Black Douglas at the beginning He's aware of the media to a certain extent, but I think for him, it's more the role of rumour in general on the goldfields. At one point, he's before the court and complaining that he has a bad name for no no point, for no fault of his own. And the judge is like, well, you know, give a dog an ill name and hang him. Basically, you've lost your reputation and that's all there is to it. You just have to live with the consequences. So the media plays a very different role in each bushranger's life. But there's definite evidence that a lot of them were media savvy and did have an understanding of trying to create a public persona.
0: I'll be honest, Meg, that I've never really understood this country's fascination with bush rangers. But Mm. how did they go from being like public enemy number one to then being this part of the national consciousness?
2: Yeah, it's definitely, it's a long process. (laughs) It's (laughs) definitely not something that happened immediately so I mean there was some lower class support for bush rangers in their own times but even now historians really like exploding a lot of those myths and showing that in some instances it seems to have been that bush rangers were helped due to fear and you know if policing around your area isn't great it might be easier for you to give a bush ranger a bit of food and let them go on their way rather than call the cops on them, but the bushranging mythology, bush ranging as a national part of our identity that we think of today is very much a part of the 20th century. So Ned Kelly was hanged in 1880, as most listeners would know, and then there's a good 20-year gap between that and Federation in 1900. And in 1900, one of the reasons that the colonies were coming together as a nation was Basically due to racism, right? Due to the White Australia policy, due to trying to make Australia a white man's country wanting to in control immigration, essentially. And so part of that cultivation of a new nation is trying to look for for symbols that can kind of show that Australia is part of this broader white, masculine Anglo world, but also have some level of national distinction. And so the bush ranging threat had passed by 1901 when the colonies federated. And here you have the symbol of the bush ranger, which could be used to show Australians, you know, love of an underdog, their sense of justice, but also kind of problematically, but also understandably, that element of the bush is incredibly important. Bush rangers using the bush to their own ends, surviving in the elements, that really naturalises a white colonial settler presence in Australia. It makes us forget that these bushrangers are also, you know, part of the colonial project. They're dispossessing First Nations people. It naturalises white colonist possession of Australia by making it seem that they have earned their place by, you know, using the bush to their own ends. And I think that's something that we don't really think of when we think of the bushranging legend today. But we just need to remember that our national heroes aren't benign, you know, that there's, they're wrapped up in legacies of colonialism and they're inherently about power. And so we need to really look critically at what type of inheritance we have and how Bushrangers came to be the heroes they are.
0: Meg, you talk about in this book the absence and silence of these stories not being in the public psyche, but do you now mm. hope that with this book, they're now visible and they have a presence of really shining a light on Australia's other bush Rangers
2: Yeah, I really hope so. I really hope that the book opens a conversation about the complicated and sticky legacy of national heroes. And I hope that it also creates a broader understanding of the fact that, you know, our National heroes were also created transnationally. Like an African-American man has an American influence. He spends some time in Mm. the UK. His experiences also inform how he relates to bush ranging. And I really hope that the book widens our understanding of who our heroes are, where we've come from, but also how far we really need to go in terms of understanding how that colonial history is still very palpable in the present today.
0: Dr. Meg Foster there, author of Boundary Crosses, the hidden history of Australia's other Bush Rangers And it's a fascinating read. On tomorrow's briefing, mind gardening, how to rewire your brain and increase your attention. And if like me, you just feel constant distraction, find out how you can focus.
2: Listener